Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. My privilege today to be preaching to you preaching to you uh, in a brand new preaching series in the book of Philippians. So if you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible on your phone or an app or something like that, then why don't you get that out? And uh, we are going to take the first 14 verses of chapter 1 and work our way through. If you're not sure uh, about uh, what the book of Philippians is all about, uh, then uh, it is a... Uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul who wrote a huge chunks of the New Testament. It was actually the first ever church started in Europe uh, in a place called Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. I think behind me I should have a little map uh, so you can picture it. There we go. So northern Greece, uh, you've got Philippi. And uh, if you've got a Bible, just turn to uh, Philippians with me and I'm going to read those first 14 verses. I'm afraid we haven't got this on the screen, so you need to um, just actually look at a Bible if you can peer over someone's shoulder. Okay, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Everyone say joy. Joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So this letter is uh, being written, as I said, by the Apostle Paul for a number of different reasons, but at the heart of it is his desire for this church to know a profound sense of joy. Everyone say joy. Joy that isn't dependent on their circumstances. So in fact, 14 times throughout this letter, you get this theme of joy or rejoicing appearing again and again. Just to give you a little bit of a taster, chapter 1, verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with... And so that through my being with you again, your in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. 2 verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and serving coming from your faith, I am glad and... Hey, you are much quicker than the earlier crowd. With all of you. So you too should be glad and... With me. Uh, Chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, my brothers, in the Lord. And 4 verse 4. In the Lord always, I will say it again. You're, you're all of you really enjoying this. This is great. I could do the whole preach like this. 
But if you look at the Apostle Paul's circumstances, they're they're rather dire. He's uh, actually initially planted this church. He's moved on to go and pioneer some new churches. But he's left this church in some very good hands and he carries this deep affection for them. So he loves this church. And they seem to like him. And so when he's arrested for preaching the gospel, um, they send uh, one of the church members with a financial gift in order to support them. Unfortunately, this guy, Epaphroditus, falls ill, and so Paul sends him back once he's recovered with sort of a thank you letter to say thanks for him, thanks for this gift, and by the way, here's some things I want to say into the church, and that's the letter that we are reading now. Remember, though, as Paul pens this letter, he's literally chained to a Roman guard who's inches away. He's been arrested for preaching a very dangerous message, which Jesus is Lord means that Caesar and whatever king there is around isn't. And so it's seen as treason. So he's in prison, and in prison there's no privacy, uh, there's uh, no money, no family. Uh, it, it feels a million miles from home. He has no possessions. His body's covered with scars from different floggings that he's received. And he's facing the prospect of death, yet he seems filled with joy. And I think that is a very radical thought. Joy in all circumstances. Why is that a radical thought? Well, simply, life is hard. Well, however like, good we've got it, we know at some point something will crack into our lives to spoil it. And you know what? I want a faith that helps me in those moments. And more than that, I want to find happiness and comfort and love and beauty in my darkest moments. And I do not believe, as Christians, we are called just to grin and bear it and pretend that everything is okay. What Paul will be communicating through this letter is that there is a place of living with God that deeply refreshes us in our best and worst times. I wonder, if you're a Christian here this morning, is joy a word used to describe your life? Are we, as a people, known for our ability to rejoice in this life? Are we a contented, satisfied, happy people? I don't know, everyone's looking at me very glumly right now. Perhaps that answers the question. Listen, when people look at your life, are you known much more for being moody or erratic or someone who you don't quite know how they're going to be doing? Are you someone that is nice, but not that happy? Um, Just about hit the cinema screens is Pixar. In our family, we love Pixar. Uh, Pixar's latest creation, I don't know if you've seen the adverts for this, but it's a film called Inside Out. Anyone seen this at cinemas yet? It's not at the cinemas. Anyone seen an advert for it? Yes, like three people. Great. Anyway... Well, this film, I'm sure some of you will get to see it at some point. I'll probably take my kids. It's a film that tries to enter into the mind of an 11-year-old called Riley and personifies her five dominant emotions. And so you have joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And these five characters are inside Riley's head led, interestingly, by joy. And they man a control panel in her brain that guide her through life. And it looks 
fascinating is these main characters face everyday scenarios and you get to see the inner workings of the mind of an 11-year-old. How creative are these guys at Pixar? The internal battles, the eventual outcomes. Anyway, apparently the great thing about this film is that it has a groundedness to happiness. And what I mean by that is that in a society that seeks joy in comfort or silliness or escapism, Pixar presents a different picture to a full life. Inside Out refreshingly declares that a good life isn't just free, is not free from sadness or anger, but actually it embraces the brokenness we all face. Inside Out says life is hard, but it's not hopeless. Grief and sadness are meaningful, even valuable experiences. And I think that's pretty unusual for Hollywood to go there. But what it reveals about that joy and comfort in silliness and sports, we can all be truly happy for a time, but there are no roots, not least not strong ones. The joy that this film portrays is a very fragile one. You see one embarrassing moment in the front of class and it all comes crashing down. See, Pixar's answer to experiencing joy is an imaginary friend called Bing Bong. And I'm sure many of us will fall in love with this character Bing Bong over time and you can just see, I can see many of you warming to him already. (laughs) But Pixar's answer to tough times is to give this girl a friend. And it's with this friend that this girl experiences joy in good moments or a stream of good friends. And listen, as believers in Christ, we believe that we can do far better than just looking forward to the next nice moment or people like Bing Bong. The hope that something good is around the corner is not enough to keep us going. True joy needs to be safe and it needs to be reliable like a ship's anchor in a storm. And so I'm sure this film will help some of our kids understand themselves better. They'll be able to imagine joy and anger and sadness, little yellow, red and blue action figures inside their brains uh, when those emotions emerge and overwhelm them. But Pixar can only point us inside of ourselves or to fleeting moments. And what we're going to discover over the next six or seven weeks is that the Apostle Paul is doing something far different in this letter. He's going to give us some clues how we can be sorrowful yet rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10. And that somehow our joy is all the more deeper and more enduring because of the grief we experience. So that's my hope over these next few weeks, that we find a joy that is long-lasting, is real and is tangible. Let's just get back into the text and work out sort of where we're at and what we're going to do with these first 14 verses. So as I've said, Philippi was a large, prospering Roman city in modern-day Greece. Just like Leeds functions as a bit of a business hub for, I guess, Yorkshire and the whole of the north, so Philippi sort of worked in the same way for a region called Macedonia. It was on the Ignatian Way, which linked um, Rome and Istanbul. And so there was a lot of trade through it. It was a quite prosperous place. And for you history buffs, it was also the location of a very famous battle between Mark Antony and Octavian uh, when they defeated the Roman Republican forces of Brutus and Cassius. And remember, Brutus and Cassius were the men who assassinated Julius Caesar. 
And this battle uh, had a massive impact on the Roman Empire and so not long afterwards, Philippi was awarded by, by Octavian. The highest possible honour was made a Roman colony. So that meant if you're a citizen of Philippi, you were also a citizen of Rome. And that is something that Paul will draw on through this letter as he explains our privileged position should give us joy because we're not just... Uh, citizens of Rome but rather we're citizens of an eternal kingdom we're citizens of heaven Uh, Philippi interesting was also a bit of a retirement city Um, it was a place where lots of ex-soldiers and ex-civil servants uh, who were based in Rome would take their savings buy a plot of land and build uh, a place to retire to Uh, It would be a little bit like, you know, if you go to parts of southern Spain where there's loads of people from England have moved out there, loads of expats, and you go there and everyone's speaking English, there's English bars and clubs, the English food, you know, some of us love it, some of us hate it, but it's a home away from home, and for the Romans, Philippi was that place. It was the place where you felt like, oh, this, this is just like Rome here. And according to Acts 16, it was also a very pagan place. So no one knew their Bibles. It was extremely sceptical of new religions. And in fact, uh, they couldn't even muster 10 men to start a synagogue. So the Apostle Paul's strategy usually was to go and visit a city. He would go to the synagogue, preach there first. But he couldn't find a synagogue to go to. There was not enough Jews there. And so... He actually finds out there is a place of open spirituality which was down by the river where some women would gather to pray. It was there that he met uh, a a lady called Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman with sort of some arts and crafts empire. She would sell purple cloth and she was evidently quite wealthy and she hears the good news about Jesus, she's saved and then because she's got some money she sort of underwrites the, uh, the, the church in Philippi. The church meets in her home, I'm sure sort of as the offering bucket went round she put in generously and she was just one of those people that was incredibly generous with what she had. One day when they're down by the river and Paul is preaching a clairvoyant turns up And she starts shouting at the top of the voice in Acts 16, verse 17. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, you would think that's, you know, if you do an open air evangelism, that's a good thing for the local sort of celebrity uh, person who's a clairvoyant to stand up and say, yes, these guys really are from God. And if you listen to them, you will be saved. But Paul doesn't like it that much and puts up with her for a bit and eventually... Uh, he casts a fortune-telling demon or something like that out of her so that she can't tell the future anymore. And obviously, whoever's her agent, whoever's making money from her gift, goes ballistic. He's not going to make any money anymore, so he, uh, he knows all her bookings are going to be cancelled. So he sort of gets the whole city in uproar over what has happened. Acts 16, verse 20. These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into uproar, which is him saying, I'm going to lose loads of money. And by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans, note the sort of the pride there, us Romans to accept or practice. And so Paul and his companions, they're arrested, they're flogged, they're put into prison. And it was in prison that they begin to worship. They begin to worship Jesus and thank him for the privilege of suffering for the gospel. And that's the joy that we're speaking about right there as they're in prison. And miraculously, God opens the gates of the jail and they're able to walk free. Now, as Paul is walking out the gates, he noticed the jailer 
who's there to keep them all inside the jail is probably sort of in tears on the floor as he realises that the game is over for him. What they used to do in those times is they used to crucify jailers who allowed any of the prisoners to escape. So this jailer is facing certain death. Paul grabs him again, explains the gospel to him. The jailer takes him back home overnight. He explains the good news about Jesus and then the jailer and his household come through into becoming Christians. And so the first church in Europe starts with a rich, creative business lady. You've got a not very good jailer and you have got an ex-clairvoyant who doesn't know what to do with the rest of her life. And that is the early church. All sort of high class, middle class, low class, beautiful picture of a weak, vulnerable people whom God loves to use to build his church. And that is the story of Mosaic. And for 15 years, for 15 years, this church has looked to the Apostle Paul for his help, support in the middle of a fiercely anti-Christian city. And they love him, he loves them. He even calls them his joy and crown in chapter 4, verse 1. And we just read, he says, I long for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. A remarkable thing for the Apostle Paul to say. However, what's happened in the church is not only are they providing for his needs and he's saying thank you, but there's also a bit of a dispute in the church. Two of the women who are leading in the church are having an argument and they are vying for position and status. They're saying, I'm in charge, not you. And you can imagine it's very tense all around the church. And so Paul is also writing this letter to address this tension. And instead of posturing, he wants these leaders to embrace humility and reject selfish ambition. And he paints a beautiful picture of our King Jesus and the humility he embodies. And that's the pattern of leadership that we have here in Mosaic. We do not rise to the top in order to lead, but rather we fall lower and lower into servanthood. And that is the qualification for leadership in the church. So listen, what do we make of these first 14 verses? Well, first of all, we know that the author is Paul. He introduces himself, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants, again, theme of leadership, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells them of his joy in the partnership that they have with one another. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's right for me to feel this way. So he's saying it's right for me to be joyful about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. There is no other letter like this that's so personal, intimate. His heart is with them and their heart is for him. But I want you to see this. He is writing this letter with a smile on his face. He's in a stinking cell surrounded by desperate criminals and hardened jailers that are used to violence and pain. And I think of it as this, many of us in the Christian life see joy and happiness as two distinct things. So some of you, sorry, let me put it this way, religious joy and happiness are two distinct things. So you may have heard Christians who miserably declared, I am very unhappy, but praise God, I'm overflowing right now with joy. Somehow they've relegated religious joy to a religious word they use when they're grumpy but know they should be happy. Does that sound familiar? 
Whereas happy is at the other end of the spectrum and is used to describe when we actually feel happy. And you know what? People that express religious joy are very hard to trust because you know they're deeply unhappy but they're pretending they're not. They're putting like this sticky plaster over a deep wound of pain. And when you look at them and they speak, I'm unhappy but truly I'm joyful, you just know that is not the reality for them. In our minds, religious joy has no actual impact on our emotions and disposition, whereas happiness is what you feel when you're feeling good. So when someone makes you a cake, when you pass that test, when you get the job, when your team wins. And I hope I'm doing it justice, but I think Paul is trying to propose this middle way with a joy and a happiness that isn't fake or dependent on good times that has has its foundation, its basis on what Christ has achieved for us by embracing the world's sorrow and pain and unhappiness, by dying on a cross and then rising from the dead, destroying the grip of death on humanity. You see, over the coming weeks, Paul is going to tell us some really important things about our reason to be joyful. He's going to talk about our victory over sin. He's going to talk about sonship, grace, friendship with God, power in prayer, purpose in life. And again and again, you're going to hear a theme actually, which is to do with finding joy in the future and drawing down on that joy in the present life. Because he believes in an eternal life where sorrow and sickness and sadness are taken away. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in America, he says this, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. The Bible teaches us that the overflow of God's work in our lives is the fruit of joy. Just to remind you, the joy that we're talking about is an actual emotion. The fruit of God's work in our life is an actual emotion. It's not this concept or this state of being, but it's actually something you feel. It's satisfying. It it, it leads to contentment. You can taste it. You know it. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian here today, when did you last feel happiness in God in the middle of a tough time. Exam stress. In the middle of just feeling like life isn't going your way. You know, as you focus on Christ's victory in your life, the natural byproduct is joy. You do not have to fake it. I'm an Arsenal fan. When Arsenal triumphed in this year's FA Cup final, I did not have to sit on the sofa and remind myself to be joyful at that moment. But the fruit of the victory was the happiness that I felt. And there's something similar to that. I can tell there's a lot of Arsenal fans by that reaction to that illustration. But there's something similar going on in the text here. And this is important, okay. Wonderfully, the glory of God is most served when we are most delighted in God. When you are at your happiest in God, then God is getting the most glory. Now, I fundamentally believe this in the Christian life. So important. We are not being selfish by pursuing 
joy in God. For a long time I thought being a Christian was that, you know, God is got to be glorified and so dutifully I would try and live my life so that he would get the glory. It doesn't really matter what I feel as long as he gets the glory. But we have not been created like that. The Christian life goes far and above duty. Let me put it like this. Say uh, my wife's here, Philippa. Imagine we were on our date night and we have a great night together. And she says, thank you so much. She's like really worried what I'm going to say here on a date night. This is an imaginary scenario. Imagine she says, thank you so much, Matt, for taking me out tonight. I've had a great time. And I say to her, oh, that's okay, Pip. It's my duty as a husband. You can guess that that answer does not honour her. It doesn't make her feel prized and loved. Now, I'd probably say something like, darling, you know, I, I love this, I love you, I love it when we get to go out. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. Now, she wouldn't say, where you want to be, you're so selfish, it's all about you. She would say, no, that, that answer honours me. When you express your delight in me, it honours me. And so when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, it's not just a command, but rather, it's an attempt to say, your true happiness and God's glory are meant to go together. Like you're meant to feel happy in God. And if you feel happy in God, God is being greatly glorified. It's not all about duty and hard work because it's all about him and not about you. But he's designed those two things to go together. It's not just this theoretical, fake, religious joy, but rather he's telling us, the way I get fullness of joy in this life is by aligning my life to God. George Muller, who, incredible man, known probably best for founding orphanages in Bristol through God's miraculous provision, used to say this, my first duty every morning is to get happy in God because until I am, I am of no use to anyone. And I totally agree with that. This is the way I frame my life. Joy in God is the sweet spot for the Christian. It impacts all of life. You know, if you were to just go through life asking these basic questions, you would do well. Does what I'm doing today increase my happiness in God? Remember, if you're happy in God, God gets much glory. So a great way to think about your days. Does what I do today increase my happiness in God? Or perhaps when you're facing a big decision, does the decisions I make today about money, about relationships, about the use of my time, does it improve my joy in God? You know, if that is your guide, you will rarely go wrong. So let's finish with this. I've got two really, really practical things to ask you about in terms of finding joy in God. Number one, what helps you connect with joy in God? And whatever that thing is, make it a discipline. So make it something that you practice regularly. Make it something that you give yourself to. So personally, I find uh, I connect with joy in God most readily by being outside especially if it's in the morning, if I'm inside, I will tend to fall asleep. And that is not conducive to finding joy in God. 
I love being by nature. I, if I could choose anywhere, I'd be by a river or by sort of a body of water. I also, many of you know, that I try and spend time with Jesus each day. The perfect, the trinity of a perfect quiet time for me would be a cup of tea, some dark chocolate, and my Bible. And I find that just having those three things present help me connect with joy in God. I'm motivated to get up if I know chocolate is coming. And there may be, there's probably many issues there. But... I'm trying to use those things to propel me towards Jesus. Um, I find worship music. I'm like someone who loves constantly music on in the background. And so I just sometimes just have to turn Radio 5 Live off, turn the radio off, and just get the worship music on. I know for me, coming on a Sunday, coming to worship with other people really helps. You often see me, I'm often at the front. And often... At the start of worship, I will hit the ground running. So hands in the air, I'm clapping, doing a little jig, whatever it is, just to try and get into worship. You know, if you see me doing that, you need to understand that it's probably because I'm not doing very well. But I just know that worship is a pathway for me to experience joy in God. If I sit at the back, do you know what I do if I sit at the back? I watch everyone else. And I find the worst thing for me engaging in worship is being sat with lots of people who are watching everyone else. And so some of you love to be at the back because it's a bit quieter or it's a way, for you, you prefer a little bit of space. You want to be on your own. But for me, I need to be near the front. I don't want any distractions. And usually it's because I know that I've got to get my heart before the Lord. And so I'm keen to do it. It's not a sign that I'm doing well. It's a sign that I, I'm actually not doing very well. I often find just watching kids helps me connect with joy in God. Others of you, you find this scenario a lot harder. And actually for you, silence and solitude is your pathway to experiencing joy in God. You need to make sure that um, you find those avenues of worship during the week. Personally, once a term, uh, I tend to take 24 hours and go on retreat, go somewhere outside of Leeds where I get perspective and time. And for some of you, you, you you're desperate for that. And in your business, you've missed God. And life is just happening to you. So listen, some of you just need to remember, what, what do you do that really helps you connect with joy in God? And then make that a discipline. Some of you, it's writing stuff down, journaling, writing your prayers down. Some of you keep a book of answered prayers. Whatever it is, make it a discipline. And secondly, what kills your joy in God? And whatever it is, be ruthless and kill them. So let me just focus on one thing, because I think it's probably one of our greatest enemies when it comes to experiencing joy in God. And that's electronic media. Do you spend a lot of your time on websites that distract and draw your passion? And whatever it is that, you know, if I was to look at your favourites toolbar or something like that, or your history, what are the websites you go to again and again? And there's probably, there's probably many, many websites you go to that are, you know, are neutral. They're not neither good nor bad. But, you know, if you give yourself to certain things for too long then all your passion is used up on them and they're not ways in which God 
can ignite joy in your heart. You know, screen shopping or screen coveting can really kill your joy in God. Do you know, I mean, we live in this world where you can go from website to website. You can even put things in a basket and you don't have to buy them. You can just accrue all these baskets all around the internet and they're all things that you want. But I just want to ask you, are they good things? What about social media? You know, things where you connect with others on the web. Let me just put this out there. If you are going to websites like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is, more than five times in a day, more than five times in one day, I would just pause and want you to ask yourself, is this good for my soul? There's nothing special about the number five. It's not like you can do four and it's all right. And there's not like this rule in Mosaic, you can only do it five times. The point is, if it's more than five times, it's obviously something you're into. Because there's many of you that would never look at it. And so just ask yourself, is this doing my soul good? Is it as simple as too much TV? Is it that just through constant watching, your emotions and your soul is being numbed? You know, the numbing that happens in our walk with God happens through trivia. So you can spend all day and all night watching videos about cats if you choose to, doing various things. It's trivia. And there's nothing wrong with cats. (laughs) But... If that's what you're giving your heart to, then I would not be surprised if your heart is distant from God. Or is it sex and violence? You know, there's a really interesting thing that's happened to our news in the last couple of years. In that, You know when something's reported on, there's been an explosion or a bomb or a terrorist attack. It's almost like it doesn't feel real until you have the footage from the actual place. And it's often filmed on someone's phone. And until the news broadcasters get that footage where you see the gunman or you see what actually happened or the victims, it's almost like they're waiting for it to happen. And I feel that's quite dangerous because it's numbing us. It's almost like the, the levels of violence have got to increase for us to truly connect with the sadness in our world. So just to tip that on its head, why don't you use social media electronic media to praise God and draw your mind back to God. Here's a confession. Um, I'm at heart quite a cynical person and so I know what is good for me is compassion. And so sometimes when I'm on the internet when I feel like I'm lacking love, I will go to a couple of websites and I will just watch some of those really cheesy, heart-rending stories about you know, someone lost their hearing and then they prayed and they were able to hear again and their mother couldn't speak and then she could speak and the first thing he heard was his mother singing or something. You know, it's some with those violins in the background and, you know, those... You all looking at me like really blankly. You know, yes? No, no, okay. There's stories out there that just warm your heart. And I find I start crying, I connect with loads of compassion and I'm suddenly there again where my heart is soft. And I'm like, God, you do love these people and you do love me and you do work miracles in this world. And I'm suddenly, I'm, I'm, I'm there again. And obviously none of you know what I'm talking about. But whatever it is your thing, whether it's books you read or 
any sort of media you use, make sure you redeem it and use it so your joy in God can be maximised. So I'm out of time. This letter to the church in Philippi, I just think it's going to do so much good. Really am hoping um, that it will lead to greater joy in our lives. Who wants more joy in their lives? Yeah, we all do, don't we? So we've titled this series, Finding Joy in Life. And this is how I picture, someone said it like this, I I just think it's beautiful. They said, the Christian should be like the prisoner during World War II, hearing by hidden radio that the Allies have landed and rescue is only a matter of time and the guards are wondering why all the rejoicing. That is what the church and the world should be like. That everyone's looking in is like, what is going on? Yorkshire folk are not known for their joyous, joyous outlook on life. But if you're a Christian, I would hope that maximum joy in God is your goal. And you do that by finding what connects to join God and making that discipline and then being ruthless with the stuff that kills your joy. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Josh is going to lead us as we sing. There's a couple of responses that I hope is going on in your mind right now. I'd love it if some of you are just feeling that sense of conviction that you're thinking, uh, this is something I need and want, but I just know I've given my heart to other things and now is sort of a time to say sorry to God and repent. But I also hope there's quite a few people in the room where this is like a hopeful message for you. Perhaps you're naturally someone that is sort of glasses half full and this is perhaps an area you just always have struggled with. My hope is there's hope for you that means you don't have to fake it, but you truly can find an emotional joy in God and be happy in God even when life is tough and even when life is good. Thank you.